In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. If I were to ask, and I guess I am asking, who in this room loves books, I reckon most all of your hands would go up. This includes, of course, our lower atrium and sprouts who are currently worshiping in the undercroft. I hear that uh, one of them read the entire Harry Potter series in the first grade. On our ride home from the youth retreat last weekend, we talked about books that we loved. When I was a kid in Indonesia, we didn't have a lot of books. The ones we had, we read over and over. I kept books under my pillow at night. They were cherished and secret treasures. I guess you could say I had a love affair with books, you know. It's very sensual, hide, touch, smell. All five senses are involved. It's a secret pleasure. So I was especially intrigued this past week by reading a reading from 2 Kings that describes a scene about finding and reading of a lost book. I mean, we can all identify in some way. We all know what it's like if a beloved book has gone missing, whether we have misplaced it, often the case with me, someone has borrowed it, or we have left it on a train or plane. I've done that too. (laughs) But in this story, in 2 Kings, it seems that no one knew or cared that this beloved book, the book of the law, the book about God's covenant relationship with his people, that book was missing. In Hilkiah, the high priest finds this book in the temple that is being repaired after decades of neglect. And he says to Shaphan, the king's secretary, you've got to read this book. And then Shaphan says to the king, you've got to read this book. Better yet, I'll read it to you. And as Shaphan reads, the king becomes agitated. And he becomes increasingly upset, so much so that he finally tears his clothes. This is some book. I read that in Jewish custom, rending your clothes represents the tear in your heart when you lose a loved one. And this indicates that this book of law was not just a book of rules. When the king hears these words, they pierce him to the heart. A good story elicits an emotional response from the reader. And as Josiah begins to understand the gravity of what's being read to him, his heart is moved to anguish. And then his hands take action. And these actions are recounted in the rest of the story there in 2 Kings as he reforms Judah. Because we can't get the hands to do what the heart doesn't feel and the mind doesn't understand. And the book of the law is another name for the covenant. The covenant is not a contract. It is not transactional. It is relational. And its commitment is moral, not legal. A covenant involves a personal relationship and presupposes a level of commitment not required of most relationships. It also involves a formalizing of that commitment that shows that we really mean it. God's relationship with Judah is such a covenant. And with all Israel... In Josiah's case, Judah had broken the covenant by having a love affair with idolatry, decades of of it under the corrupt king Manasseh. So when Shaphan reads the book, Josiah is stricken because the reading of the book shocks him into realizing 
just how unfaithful Judah has been and the devastating consequences of that unfaithfulness, which included cult prostitution and child sacrifice. When covenant is broken, society is shattered, and the most vulnerable are the most at risk, sacrifice to the idols of our lives. And it's all in this book. What Judah was meant to be in relationship to God and the catastrophe that they have become without him. And this helps Josiah realize that the problem is that they have stopped reading the book. They've stopped being people of the book, defined and identified by the covenant. Instead, what have they done? They've, they've turned from the book to the groves and the trees, the sun and the moon, the high places where they sacrifice to the gods of the sun, moon, stars, the earth, what grew from the earth, the gods who made the earth fertile, not realizing, of course, they had forgotten that it was the creator God. And all creation reflects his glory, but they had forgotten him. Turn to the other gods. It's easier to go out with the gods and try to live with Yahweh. Yahweh was a different kind of being altogether, invisible, invisible, unknowable, unpredictable, a God that we cannot manipulate by magic or explain by myth or appeased by sacrifices, the kind of God that shows up in a bush or a mountain that burn with his terrible, wondrous, mysterious presence. How do you relate to this God who is beyond nature? Through language. God speaks to us, and we're able to hear that speech. Remember how Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings. He says, yell louder, he can't hear you. And they raved on, but there was no voice. And Judaism, although it includes holy places and holy books, is above all a religion of holy words. This is where you find God. Open a Torah scroll and read, just as Josiah did. The, the Torah is written once, but through it, God keeps talking with his people. The covenant leads to conversation. A covenant without conversation will frost and then freeze the relationship that is bound and sealed and sanctified by the covenant. And when the relationship is frozen, we look for warmth in all the wrong places, and we get burned. What keeps us abiding by the covenant? Words. Wonderful words, beautiful words, wonderful, wonderful words of life. Keep talking, keep listening, keep responding to the words spoken, because that is what proves that we've been listening. We're receptive, we're not hardening our hearts in resistance, but opening them in receptivity to the words spoken. And the wonderful words of life are not necessarily in always nice words. They're often hard words. And it's especially important we receive the hard words and have the hard conversations which keep us from wandering into la-la land. And don't harden our hearts against the hard words, the prophetic words. Have you had any hard conversations in the past few days? I have. Church is a place where we tend to avoid these kinds of conversations and we pay the price. Susan Scott, who wrote the book Fierce Conversations, wrote this, companies and marriages derail because people don't say what they're really thinking. And churches derail too. Conversely, there is something deep within us that responds deeply to people who level with us. 
And this brings us to, today, to today's gospel reading, which is a section of the Sermon on the Mount. I put the Beatitudes as well as the entire Sermon on the Mount in the category of hard sayings of Jesus. that juxtapose blessing with hardship. There is blessing through hardship. Blessed are the poor, the ones who mourn, the persecuted. Stay salty or become worthless. You are the light. You're not the hill, the city, the house. You're just the light. Don't hide your light. Keep all the commandments, even the least of them. Be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. The only way we can possibly do this is by having a relationship with Jesus. I say to you, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, he doesn't say, here's what I think about this, or here are some thoughts that you might find helpful, or let's midrash the heck out of this. <laughs> Jesus gets in their faces, and in doing so, he appeals to the Jewish people's love, their love for the book of law, which he does not replace but fulfills. The book isn't gone. Its main character has walked right out of its pages, and reads it, and lives it with us, and from inside us. Jesus says, you want to keep the law? Love me. I wasn't here last Sunday, but I hear that, I actually listened to him, Reverend Angelus Wilson ended his sermon by singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And you all sang with him. Sometimes it takes a song to express that love, and you feel it in your heart, what you know in your head. The book of law has become the book of love because love fulfills the law. And the book has now become a person who embodies the book. I was realizing this week in a great book, well, I realized it before this week, but it came to me in a new and a fresh way. The characters come to life and we identify with them. The book of the law, the covenant is between God and his people. It is about both. And both read it and abide by it. The characters of this book are God and the Jewish people who, are, who represent all of us. If Josiah read the book of the law, guess who also read the book of the law? God himself, who needs to identify with us as much as we need to identify with him. And how does God do that? He sends Jesus, the central character of the Second Testament, the sequel to the First Testament, so that God can identify with us, so we can identify with him and live in and live out his identity. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the meek, those who mourn, who suffer, when he talks about being salt and light, the one who obeys the commandments and teaches them, the one whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he is talking about himself. I was startled to read this past week that Jesus came from the peasant class. He did not only become one of us, he became one of the poorest of us. I have this thinking that Jesus, yes, he suffered on the cross, but until then he just kind of glided effortlessly through life. If he needed money, he found it in the mouth of a fish. <laughs> Food or a place to stay, he just asked to eat and bunk at a friend's house. If he wanted wine, well, he just asked for a glass of water. <laughs> Jesus was a poor, simple man who knew how peasants struggled. And most of the people he taught were in that same situation. Jesus and his audience understood each other. And perhaps the best way for us to get on Jesus' wavelength is to get on his socioeconomic level. I have no idea where to go with that thought. 
except to go to Paul in 1 Corinthians, our epistle reading for today that Tom read for us. Paul, the magnificent rabbi who lost everything, who gave up everything, wealth, prestige, and influence to gain Christ. Paul writing to the Corinthians, and what informs all his writing is his relationship with Jesus. This is why he says to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the poor, suffering, meek, persecuted, put to death Christ. And I was with you, Paul says, not in competence and confidence, using the power of rhetoric to, to enthrall, to persuade, to convince, to manipulate you, but I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is the great apostle Paul. And my words were not eloquent, profound, but they were a demonstration of God's power in my weakness. Many years ago when I was at another church, young preacher, there was a wonderful woman from Bolivia, Ana Maria Ortiz, and she became my friend and I preached one Sunday morning. She came up to me, she said, oh Rob, I love it so much when you preach. And I thought, well, here it comes, good. And then she says, you know, you stumble and you stutter. <laughs> she said, but you're so sincere. The words come straight from your heart. You know, the words that come out of our hearts, they're not often glossed and polished. The hard things, we stumble through them. But in our stumbling, people understand where it's coming from. It's coming from a place of deep love. The Beatitudes are blessings. They are blessings. We bless one another, not with our triumphs, our successes, but with our mistakes, our brokenness, our weakness, and our failure. Blessed are you when you stumble and stutter your way into the presence of God, when you don't know the answer, when you have to sit silently for 20 minutes, expectantly with no agenda whatsoever, with nothing to offer but yourself, and with the blessed assurance, don't worry, I'm not going to start singing blessed assurance right now, <laughs> with the blessed assurance that all God has to offer you is himself, and that is enough, and that is more than enough, and he is all you need. Amen.